you know, it's probably not fair to ask me to try to pronounce something in a language other than English when I'm recovering from a cold and or sinus infection, but I'm going to try it anyway. This song is called Surpriente. It is from the band The Surfing Robbers. They're a Spanish surf band. It comes from their new album, Tropicalia. I think I nailed that, okay? I can't roll my R's normally anyway. But anyway, go check them out at thesurfingrobbers.bandcamp.com or look them up on Instagram under The Surfing Robbers or go to their Facebook page. Again, The Surfing Robbers. However you get to them, check out their new release and let them know that you heard about them here on the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not-so-classic genre cinema of yesteryear. This is Monster Kid Radio. I am your writer, host, producer, Derek M. Cook. You are the best podcast listeners in the world. Thank you for tuning in this week. I appreciate having you here. This week on the show, again, Steve Turek knocking it out of the park, doing me a huge solid. The best wedding gift that he could have possibly given me continues to give because this week he has another recording that he did with another Monster Kid Radio irregular. He sat down with filmmaker Ansel Farage, who just recently released his feature film, Todd Tarantula. I'll make sure there's a link in the show notes to the trailer at the very least, so you can go check that out. When you're done listening to him, talk with Steven about the movie, Mark of the Vampire Man. Bela Lugosi, right where he belongs here, on Monster Kid Radio with a couple of Monster Kids having a fun conversation about the film, about Lugosi. And you know Ansel's going to talk a little bit about his own filmmaking too, I'm sure. So tune in for that or stick around for that at least because that's what's coming up later in this episode. Of course, it would not be an episode of Monster Kid Radio without some of the amazing segments being sent in by people like Kenny who sent in his look at Famous Monsters of Filmland or Mark Matsky and his beta capsule review we're going to get to that here in a second even though i have a cold i'm going to go ahead and read an email that was sent in to the show this comes from listener jack b he writes to derek or steve or scott or whom it may concern dear whom i first read about the twonky as a young sci-fi kid in the 1970s and only got to see it recently probably the same tcm showing that Scott thinks of as ages ago. I should have probably pointed out that the subject heading for this email was twonkiness, and it came in in regards to the episode that Scott just recently did here on the show with Steve, in which they talked about the movie Twonky. For what it's worth, before I continue the email, Jack, I actually shared this email with Scott uh, pretty much as soon as it came in. Scott and Tracy were in town for the wedding. We went out to dinner. I showed this to him while we were waiting for our food to arrive when we had dinner at the Raven's Manor, which, by the way, super cool restaurant. I'm sure there will be a team death video about that coming up on YouTube in the near future. Let's get back to the email from Jack. The Twonky is one of the forgotten robots of the 1950s. I rate robots by how much we can believe they aren't just an actor in a tin suit. You'd think the Twonky would automatically rate highest, but there are levels according to how much it cheats. R2-D2, for example, could be hiding an arm with any tool behind any of those hatches at any time, without worry if it all fits in. And it rates a bit below Vincent of the black hole, whose arms and lasers retract, but are still clearly located. The Twonky rates a little lower yet, with a bit more cheating with those beams of electricity that can play cards or stack dishes. The story describes whip-like tentacles that come from a slot under one of the dials. If this inspires anyone to animate tentacles over the old movie, please do so! 
I suggest animating away the beam from the screen and having the tentacles come from the rectangle between its two dials. It's probably a door hiding the knobs and control brightness to horizontal hold and whatever. Either YouTube on my phone is clearer than the old TV I first watched it on, or I'm looking closer. But between the knobs and the screen is the Admiral logo, suggesting that instead of building a prop TV, the filmmakers just bought one or two. And we can all get our own. I'm in the middle of an image search right now and other things, and I'm finding out that Admiral was aiming for the lower priced range with a quote-unquote tabletop set, not built into its own giant wood cabinet. This makes sense. The prop department would have had to have mounted on their own special legs anyway. The price would have been between $200 and $300, and one eBay option, not about that much for the quote-unquote antique. Well, maybe I won't have one of my own anyway. I hope this won't sound as weird coming from a stranger to feel saying it, but congratulations to see you and Beth. After all, winning attention as one of the scare attractions of the year is quite an accomplishment. Jack. Jack, thank you for writing in. So like I said, I did share this email with Scott, and he looked it over as well, and you know he, he agrees. Uh, with you with what you had to say and you mentioned the black hole in fact that is a movie that i've been wanting to talk about here on monster kid radio for a very very long time i'd say almost from the very beginning of monster kid radio's existence which is coming up on ten, almost 10 years now Oof. Uh, i've wanted to talk about the black hole even though it's kind of outside of that window that we kind of sort of have set up for movies we're going to talk about here on the show I've wanted to do the Black Hole as a crossover with Scott and his wife Tracy over at Disney Indiana because it is a Disney film. I have a lot of fond memories of the Black Hole, even though I own it now on disc. I haven't watched it in forever. Can't remember the last time I watched it, but it's been quite a while. And even back then, I thought, you know, I still like this movie. It's a movie that I remember fondly seeing as a kid. I had Vincent and Old Bob not action figures, but like cardboard cutouts that I think I got from a fast food restaurant as a kid. I don't remember for sure, but it's something that I'd love to do a deep dive with with Scott and Tracy as like a Monster Kid Radio Disney Indiana crossover. For Scott and Tracy, if you're listening, let's finally make that happen. It's been 10 years, almost. Anyway, uh, thank you for writing in, and thanks for the congratulations uh, to me and Beth. Beth is just amazing. Uh, <laughs> you know, I'm going to go down that that uh, how awesome is Beth rabbit hole if I'm not careful, but how awesome is Beth, right? Uh, there will be a YouTube video in the near future, maybe within the next couple of weeks, showing some highlights from the wedding. Stay tuned to the Team Death YouTube channel uh, for that, or follow us over at teamdeath.com. Death, in this case, is spelled D-E-T-H. So it's Team D-E for Derek, T-H from Beth. So follow along over there for anything going on in that world of stuff that we're doing. Jack, thank you for writing in. If you want to be cool like Jack and you want to write in yourself, please feel free. Email me at monsterkidradio at gmail.com. You know, you can also call and leave us a voicemail like Captain Billy did. Let's listen to that. Hey, Derek. Hey, group. Captain Billy here. Hey, uh, you said model kit, so you said the magic word again. Hey, Captain Billy, pop up. Congratulations. So the Aurora model kits, the question was, did the Aurora, the Aurora original Aurora kits come with paint? There were no actual paints in the box from what I can tell. I'm not an expert at this. I, poke, I remember there being Aurora model paint at some point, and I feel poking around the internet, and then I remember, I, I saw Aurora did sell paints, ink brushes and glue, but I know they for sure they sell the collection of paint that paint a, a box of 10 or 12 colors because they... Uh, there were guys, there were people on the internet a few years ago, I saw people trying to collect these. 
the original boxes and the original bottles for the paints and all that. So, uh, in fact, actually, somebody had a question on our website whether they'll still be good after 50 plus years. So, uh, the original kits started with Fike and back in 61, I believe it was 61. And the story I had heard that they had sold before they were all said and done over 10 million Frankenstein kits. I don't know if that's true or not. I do know that at some point there was a factory running 24-7 just cranking out monster kits. Um, yeah, I believe the original molds were mentioned. Yes, there was supposed to be a train crash sometime in the 70s. I've done zero research on this. That destroyed certain molds. I know there was a, uh, a line of model kits in the 70s called the Gigantics, which was a giant uh, praying mantis, a tarantula, and a, a scorpion. And the fourth kit was a giant wasp. And the mold for that kit was the, supposedly destroyed in that um, train crash. So when they reissued those kits in the 90s, there was no wasp to be seen, and that's the most collectible one out of those four. So, so yeah, there was a model kit. There was a crash or some, a train crash at some point that destroyed a whole bunch of molds. But, fortunately, the millions of the kits still existed, so people have recasted molds from those kits. So the Aurora kits are still available. In fact, I believe, oh, one of whatever is left of the big model kit companies is reissuing those kits again. I saw them, um, there's a magazine you buy your, you order your comic books from called Previews. They were listed in that Previews, I believe, for March, so they should be available coming next month or sometime this spring. Uh, so you can pop down to your local comic book store or your local hobby shop, and they should be able to order uh, Frankenstein, your old 1960s Frankenstein Dracula kits, just like they were. And if you don't have a model, uh, comic book store or model hobby shop in your neighborhood, you can go to cultvtvman.com. Just do a Google search for Cult TV Man. I mean, there's lots of places to sell model kits, but the Cult TV, that's the guy. You will find something. If you're in this, you'll find something there to waste your time looking at and drool over, so... And as for the creature of the Black Lagoon having red lips, well, I thought this was common knowledge, especially with you, Derek. I'm surprised I didn't know that you were talking and you acted like you didn't know what, what the story was behind that. Supposedly, the story I read maybe 10 years ago or more on the internet was that the Life magazine was coming down to Universal to actually shoot, or Florida, I guess, is where they shot the outdoor scenes. Uh, or wherever they shot the outdoor scenes. Uh, Life magazine was going to come down and do a photo shoot. And they had Julie Adams, and there's like six or eight pictures, maybe ten, I think. I know for sure six. And for whatever reason, the uh, article never appeared in the actual magazine. But at some point in the last ten or twenty years, the, ma the pictures, the original pictures, showed up on the internet. So there are pictures, uh, Julie struggling with the monster in the water, and there's a big picture, a picture, the most famous picture out of that shot, kind of was a shot of a monster with his hands over his, hand, over his head. And in all those pictures, the monster has red lips. Story I read... Somebody on the set when they were go somebody when they were gonna go shoot this, either with Life magazine or Universal, somebody somewhere decided they didn't like the way the mouth the monster's mouth looked uh, for these pictures this picture taken and they painted the lips like right before the shooting because it's the shot um, the, the pictures were being taken I believe after production was done. Uh, they were gonna paint his lips red because they just popped better on the film. I don't know the reasoning behind it. But my understanding was the lips were painted red for that, and I believe those pictures would end up wound up in the Aurora um, offices. And those are the lips the, that James Obama painted onto the model kit, the monster, the Creature of the Goon box. And that's why everyone's model kit had red lips. Uh, yes, there was James Obama who painted the boxes. He, um, uh, he just died a few years ago, two or three years ago. 
And he, if you go to what they jamesbama.com, he had, I guess, finished his life off living in New Mexico or Arizona, and he was painting um, uh, Native American portraits. And if you go to that website, yeah, it's a lot of horses and Native American pictures, and there's no mention of the Aurora kits, and there's no mention of uh, all the Doc Savage uh, paperback covers he painted in the 60s and 70s. So, uh, not because, I just, for whatever reason, that, anyway, I don't know why James Bama didn't promote himself for that stuff, but. Uh, and the last bit of tidbit, now I'm thinking about it, that original artwork for the model kits, when they did the Lightning Lightning set in the 70s, cause somebody, or late 50s, because somebody decided to revitalize the line, they were going to put glow parts on the monsters. So you got a good glow head, maybe glow hands or a leg or something like that. In fact, my first Aurora kit was a uh, Godzilla with the glow parts in the original the old square boxes they used in the 70s. They painted over the original James Bama art in order to put the glow features on the monsters for the box covers. So, don't know what anybody was thinking of Aurora, but again, this was, you know, the 70s and, you know, original art wasn't, pop arts, whatever, wasn't valued like it would be today, so. Alright, Derek, uh, great show, keep up the good work, say hello to the lovely Beth, the beautiful Beth, and uh, I'll talk to you later, bye. Listen to Captain Billy dropping knowledge on that, that's awesome. Uh, yeah, I... I, you know, as you were talking about the creature from the Black Lagoon and its red lips, it started to come back to me. I have been a little away from my fandom the way that I used to be. Getting ready for the wedding, now dealing with a move and everything else. I, I've really kind of disconnected a little bit from those parts of of me. And, and that's okay. You know, I'm getting back into it now. I've just had to focus... For those of you who are into spoon theory, I've given all of my spoons to getting ready for the wedding and everything that goes around with that. But I'm starting to get back into it now. And as you said that, Billy, like I said, I started to remember that, yeah, that, that's what had happened there. So thank you for calling that in and reminding me uh, of that. You know, you talked a little bit about the Aurora models and all that. It's out of print now, but if you can get your hands on a copy of a documentary called The Aurora Models, The Model Craze That Gripped the World, it looks like you can get used copies of it or maybe third-party copies of it or whatever through Amazon for like 20 bucks. If you can get your hands on that, I highly recommend it. It talks a lot about the James Bama artwork as well as some of the other things going on with Aurora Models or Aurora Monsters. A friend of the show, Daniel Horn, is in the documentary as well. Daniel Roebuck, another monster kid, is also featured in there as well. As is Zachary, the horror host. So if you get your hands on that documentary... I highly recommend it. Now, if you want to be like Captain Billy and shoot a voicemail to us, call me at 360-524-2484 and leave a voicemail. Now, the voicemail line does have a three-minute limit, and Captain Billy's really good about this. He calls, he leaves a longer message in three minutes. What he'll do is as soon as the phone cuts him off, he'll just call right back and pick right back up. And then I just edit the voicemails together into one giant track. So... If you have more than three minutes of stuff to say, feel free to call more than once. Or prepare your own MP3 file or WAV file, audio file of some sort, and email it to me at monsterkidradio at gmail.com. Hey, Derek. Captain Billy here. Just uh, belated uh, congratulations on your nuptials. I'm sure you and Beth will be very, very happy for many, 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 many years. And then when you get down to the end there, it'll be towering each other's nothing, so... Like our remarriage. <laughs> uh, Derek, that is it. Just keep up the good work and thanks, uh, thanks for the show. 
Bye. Oh, thanks, man. I appreciate that. Yeah, no, it's it's gone well so far. It's been uh, two weeks at this point, and the past two weeks have been amazing, and I know that the rest of our lives together are going to be even better. Thank you to you, Captain Billy. Uh, thank you to Jack. I mentioned it in his email, and thanks again to everybody who's reached out to me on Facebook, on Instagram, by email, by text, if you happen to have my text number. Just I appreciate everybody's congratulations and well wishes. Uh, the cards that we've got, we still are getting cards in the mail. Thank you for that as well. I share all of this with Beth. Uh, I share everything with Beth. Beth is, uh, well, my everything. So, of course, I'm going to share everything. But I will pass this along for sure. Let's go ahead and get into the rest of the show. Like I said earlier, we've got Kenny waiting in the wings with his look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. But first, Mark Matzi's Beta Capsule Review. We're going to get some Ultraman action right about now. Monsters from Under the Sea, Atomic Frankensteins, and Grandpa Monster 2. Classic monster memorabilia vendors, movie and TV stars, signing autographed photos. It's all coming to the Marriott Pittsburgh North, June 16th through the 18th, 2023. It's Monster Bash! Fans who grew up with monster movies in the theater and on TV will descend on the Marriott Pittsburgh North. Hundreds and hundreds of fans. Don't you scare miss out as fans travel from all over the country to meet, shop, and enjoy classic monster entertainment. Coming to Monster Bash in June, Audrey Dalton, star of The Monster That Challenged the World, and Boris Karloff's thriller TV shows. Charlotte Austin, who starred in Frankenstein 1970 with Karloff and Ed Wood's The Bride and the Beast. Lynn Lugosi Sparks, the granddaughter of Dracula himself, Bela Lugosi. Daniel Roebuck, star of countless films, TV's Matlock, and Grandpa Munster in the latest Munsters movie. Plus, he's a super fan and collector of classic monster memorabilia. Beverly Washburn, actress in Spider Baby with Lon Chaney Jr., Thriller, and Disney's Old Yeller. Tom Savini, actor, makeup man, special effects genius, with credits that include Creep Show, Tales from the Dark Side, The Black Phone, and so much more. Pamela Pierce, actress and daughter of the director that brought us The Legend of Boggy Creek. John Russo, co-writer and zombie from the original Night of the Living Dead, the origin of the modern zombie and Ohio TV horror host legend, the one and only Son of Ghoul, still creeping to TV sets after all these years. Plus, Cleveland horror hosts Drac and Countess Corita. Monster Bash is wall-to-wall vendors and a giant horror hotel packed with classic monster movie fans. Don't miss out. 
three-day VIP admission is $55 in advance or $60 at the door for all three packed days. Single-day admission at the door is $25. It's all at the Pittsburgh Marriott North, Friday through Sunday, June 16th through the 18th, 2023. Get your advanced membership admission online at creepyclassics.com. That's creepyclassics.com. More information is available at monsterbash.us or call 724-238-4317. It's Monster Bash. If you are a murderer, a blackmailer, or a thief, with a face as ugly as sin, and a mind as distorted as the devil's, then this man, he might help you. You could be beautiful, if you would trust me. Think twice before you join his circus of horrors. He'll change your face beyond recognition, but your soul He'll enslave for all time. Remember, he alone will know the secrets of your evil past. And never will he let you escape alive. Anton Diffring as Dr. Schuller rose to glory in a trail of blood. Erika Remberg as one of the girls whose face and fate he changed, but not her mind. <laughs> you can't frighten me. These others have been stupid, just plain stupid. What others? The late unlamented ones who have died so suddenly and so strangely. This is the little girl with a maimed face who was forever beholden to him. Beautiful. Who grew from innocent childhood into trusting adolescence. I would do nothing to hurt you. I owe you so much. I love you so much. She was his one weakness. <laughs> this maniac who first healed and then killed. Rosita. What just happened was an accident. Every second is filled with unexpected danger and terror. As a doctor, a specialist in horror, uses his sinister skill to make a circus of criminals perform at his bidding. Live from the Land of Light in Nebula M78, home of the mighty Ultra Heroes, it's Monster Kid Radio's Beta Capsule Review. Return of Ultraman, Episode 11, Poison Gas Monster Appears. Original air date, June 11th, 1971. In response to monster sightings reported by the Forest Service, Monster Attack Team conducts a three-day air patrol of the area. Kishida, Go, and Minami make a gruesome discovery. 
an entire film crew lies dead, covered in a yellow substance, with their audio tape still running. MAT develops the film and plays the audio in sync with the movie, watching in horror as the crew is overcome with toxic fumes, and a giant monster lumbers into view in the final frames, with the tape having recorded its high-pitched roar. Staff officer Satake informs MAT that autopsies reveal the crew was killed by poison gas, which had been developed by the old Japanese army, and that gas is now being emitted from the monster. Kishida is deeply troubled by this development, as he suspects his officer father had been involved in the development of a gas bomb during the war. Returning home, he consults his mother, who gives him access to his father's personal papers. In them, he learns his father was part of the gas bomb project, and this knowledge drives Kishida to try to defeat the monster himself as a way of atoning for his father's actions. However, going rogue sets him against the monster attack team principles of teamwork and cooperation and exposes him to potentially lethal consequences. Poison Gas Monster appears, has some heavy themes and shocking imagery, dealing as it does with guilt over the inhumanity of war. Kishida, always an honorable character, believes he's doing an honorable thing for his father's name by facing the gas monster Mognazan alone. But it breaks the MAT ethic of teamwork that, ironically, he was preaching to Ueno at the beginning of the episode. In another nice bit of writing, the final battle reinforces the concept of interdependence between MAT and Ultraman. Only their combined effort achieves the victory, whether the opponent is a giant monster or a guilty conscience. For Monster Kid Radio's Beta Capsule Review, this is Mark Matsky reporting.
another half hour, you're going to see what a million dollars in gold bullion looks like. It's Jungle Jim. You're right, memory is hard to kill. Not now, he ain't. It's alive, it's moving, it's coming this way. It's the wolf monster, a new ghastly creature from the world of darkness, evil, and horror. Frightening, fear-filling, fiendish, and fantastic horror is here. <laughs> Now a new horror curse is unleashed as the hideous wolf monster is brought to life. From out of the crypts of undead beings comes a maniacal blood-mad demon seeking new living victims. Killer with new frightening fiends to shock you speechless. You'll meet the vampire doctor, master of unholy witchcraft, the ghoul woman, a female demon whose kiss means doom, and the fantastic flesh-mad wolf monster. Frankenstein's bloody terror. It's a super shock spectacle of hideous horror in Chillerama 70 and gory color. Hello there, Monster Kid Radioheads. This is Kenny with a look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. Today's guest host, Steve Turek, and his guest will be talking about the MGM classic, Mark of the Vampire. Famous Monsters presented a film book of this Bela Lugosi film in issues 61 and 62 from early 1970. While doing my segment preparation, I found out something very unusual about this article. First, let's look at the introduction to the film. It was vintage Lugosi, Bela looking his best. The role that made Lugosi's protege, Carol Borland, a living legend. A picture directed by Todd Browning of Lon Chaney fame based on London After Midnight, with Lionel Barrymore as Professor Zellin, Lionel Atwell as Inspector Newman, Jean Herschelt as Baron Otto von Zenden, Elizabeth Allen as Irene Borodin, MGM's macabre, grim movie of 1935, Mark the Vampire. The rest of the two-part, 14-page, 12-photo article was a detailed synopsis. I wanted to share how the writer described the eerie, wordless presentation of the two vampires in the film, but I could not find it anywhere. On closer examination, with a look at the film itself, I discovered that the film book had little to do with the actual movie. 
Was it taken from an unused or butchered script? Was it just made up from vague memories of the film? Let me give you an example. Here's an excerpt from the film book which supposedly describes the opening scene. Two travelers sat at a table at the only inn of the village of Visaka in Czechoslovakia. The buxom landlady brought them food. You know these parts? she asked. Actually, the two travelers were a man and his wife on a walking tour. It was the husband who answered with a shake of his head. You are lucky to get here before the moon rises. Why were we lucky? The wife was puzzled. We like tramping by the moonlight. In fact, we thought of going tonight to Mareka, which the guidebooks say is four miles from here. The landlady looked at them with horror. You would be mad to go there tonight. You must stay here. I will arrange your room. The middle-aged wife stared at her husband when the landlady had bustled off to serve a customer. Well, I like her impertinence. We're ordered to stay here, and I'm not so keen to stay in a, this pokey little inn when I can sleep in a comfortable hotel. Yes, and it's a grand night for a tramp, Elsa. Cool and easy walking. Think how grand the country will look by the moon. He gave a decisive nod. I'll call her over and say we're not staying. The landlady gaped at the man and so irritated the wife that she repeated the fact that they were starting at once and could they settle the account. You're strangers, the landlady cried, as if that explained everything. You don't know about Count Mora and Luna? Never heard of them, declared the husband. They haunt the road through the valley, the road that leads to Mareka. The landlady spoke in an odd whisper, and the time to see them is when the moon is full. Note, there was no mention of all the wordless town activity that actually opens the film. Now, here is the opening dialogue from the actual film. I'm sorry, gentlemen and lady, but it will be best for you to stay here tonight. Come now, my good man. You can't frighten us. We've been over your foul roads before. Please, you do not understand. It is not the road, it is the darkness. Here our doors are protected with bad turns. What is all this bat-thorn business? It keeps them out. They're afraid of it. The demons of the castle. Now, lest you think that they had a script and the movie cut out the part mentioned in the film book, I assure you that what was said in the movie is also not included in the film book. They are totally different. Very strange. Let's jump to the ending. I won't spoil the final surprise, but let's hear what the film book had to say about the mystery's resolution. You are under arrest for the murder of Sir Carol Boraton. The inspector produced handcuffs and snapped them over the Baron's wrists. They led the struggling, cursing wretch away. And that settles the mark of the vampire, pronounced the professor. And I think we can all stay in the haunted castle without fear of being disturbed. Where is Arena? Gone off to comfort poor Fedor, chuckled Inspector Newman. I had to leave him locked in one of the rooms. I left him yelling blue murder. I think we can leave Arena to pacify the young man, said the professor. I think we might finish this excellent doped wine before disturbing them. An excellent vintage, remarked the specter of Sir Carol Boraton. I trust there are some more bottles in the cellars. I am sure Count Moore and his daughter would like to join in drink in the healthy of Miss Arena and young Count Fedor. They raised their glasses and all drank the toast. And that was the end of the film book. 
the surprise was not even mentioned. Starting at the arrest, let us hear the movie version of the mystery's resolution. Baronato, you're under arrest for the murder of Sir Carol Borrowton. You were very clever in concealing the motive of your crime. <laughs> we never dreamt it was Miss Borrowton you were after. Friends, take him out of the car. I don't get the idea of his heating the glass. I had to cup him with. The cup him of his blood. Uh, that hot glass over the wound creates a powerful suction. Mm. Forgive me, Fedor. But they wouldn't let me tell you. They were afraid that you wouldn't let me go through with it. Totally different. Needless to say, the mystery of this strange film book is as unusual as the movie's story and its production history. Suffice to say that in this case, you can't rely on FM to present you a reliable idea of what was in The Mark of the Vampire. That is all for this week's look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. We will have more next time. For MKR, this is Kenny saying adios. Send on you in the shape of lovely white doves. <laughs> That's a nice rooster. Go on, run. Mark of the Devil. It's a sacred duty to tell us the truth. Name just one of your accomplices, and the executioner will stop the torture. Confess, confess that you've been guilty of witchcraft. We must not let her die yet. I want confessions, not corpses. When you asked me three years ago to become my pupil, I warned you not to see an idol in me. On the difficult path we are going to go together, I said, many innocent people are going to die. I said that to you, I remember the day. Stop that witch! Mark of the Devil. In Europe, between the 15th and 19th centuries, it is estimated nearly 8 million people were convicted of heresy and executed by fanatical witch hunters in order to save their souls. In front of death, I thank you for your mercy, for having me freed from the terrible agony of torture. Witch. 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 New Joe. Pretty. Popular. A nice girl. Meet Jill. Tormented. Evil. Possessed by what? Miss Mark of the Witch. From the farthest pit in hell, thou awaited long this hour. Source of mysteries. Speak. I have read, the thing that gets to me is that those that try to cast out witches suffer terribly themselves. You wouldn't believe that they're supposed to be the good guys. Jill, a passionate and lovely body. 
a mind steeped in the dark mysteries of witchcraft, and a burning light against the man she loved three centuries ago. I've come to take you back through years of time. Get to the good part. What about sex? From innocent parlor games to deadly midnight rituals, a quiet college campus is terrorized by a depraved evil woman three centuries dead. See Mark of the Witch in color. Rated GP. All ages admitted. Parental discretion advised. Hello, everybody, to another episode of Monster Kid Radio. I know normally it's Derek's voice, and as you know from the last several episodes, I've been filling in for him as he's getting married. At this point, he might be married. And if you are married, Derek, congratulations to you and Beth. I hope you guys have a wonderful honeymoon and enjoy yourself for many, 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 many years and decades to come. Um, These last four episodes have been my wedding gift to you and her to give you guys something that's more precious, I think, than anything else, and it's time to spend together. So that way you didn't have to worry about all these episodes. And I'm very thankful for the people that have been helping me out, get these episodes to you. And today I am joined with the one and only director of Loon Lake, director of Will and Liz, the director of Todd Tarantula, Ansel Farage. (laughs) Thank you, Stephen, for having me on Derek's show. (laughs) Well, you're welcome. Well, you know, I don't think Derek wants me just talking the whole episode by myself. I mean, uh, even I know my limitations. No, nobody wants to hear this voice for that long. <laughs> and you, well, I'll, I'll try my best to, to join in. <laughs> and you, my friend, are, are extremely talented. You have a new movie that just came out a few weeks ago. Todd Tarantula. Um, let listeners know the Reader's Digest pitch. You know why? They, why should they see this? psychedelic bike action horror sci-fi time travel movie it hits all the ticks all the boxes in genres that, yeah and you forgot stoner comedy too um but <laughs> but uh yeah what is the reader's digest pitch it is a mystery of psychedelic proportions uh following todd tarantula who is this sort of down and out punk in Los Angeles and his motorbike gets stolen, which leads him on an odyssey uh, beyond space and time and Los Angeles traffic uh, to recover said bike and maybe learn something far stranger and darker that he didn't quite know about uh, himself and uh, his, 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 uh, his past, we'll say. And it's a project that I've been working on for almost 12 years, and I'm very happy that it finally exists and is available to watch on Tubi. And uh, it's something that uh, uh, is quite unlike anything else that's out there right now, if I do say so myself. And I will say, I've seen the movie. Um, I reviewed the movie on my podcast, Diecast Movie Podcast, so people want to know more of my thoughts there. And we have some exclusive interviews with, some of the cast and crew on that side, including the legendary actor. You, I love it when you always have him in there. He was wonderful in Loon Lake, and he got the Best Supporting Actor Award, David Selby, for Todd Tarantula. Uh, what, what was it like working with um, David Selby again? I mean, he's just awesome. David, this is the third time we've worked together, and uh, 
he's so nice and generous and um, always just ready to like get down into it and have fun and do whatever crazy requests I might have of him. Uh, and he, he really like the role was challenging, but he had so much fun. And uh, he said uh, that uh, getting to work with, with young filmmakers and, and, and doing things that are not what Hollywood is doing is, is the, is the most rewarding and exciting aspect of, of this. And I'm very honored that I, I get to have an actor of his stature come back to work with me time and time again. And, um, and, uh, yes, he won best supporting actor at the Hollywood real independent film festival for his performance as Lucifer in Todd Tarantula. And, uh, it's a role, it's a, it's a performance that's very undated and, and, uh, very different from any kind of other character he's portrayed. Although I know some people have said that he's a bit Falcon Cresty, but a little more wicked <laughs> than, than Richard Channing. So, yeah. And he is dressed in that white suit to kill. And that yep. cane you gave him as a prop, he utilizes it to the nines, especially when listeners, when you go to watch this movie on Tubi, or you can also watch this movie um, on, what's the other service? On uh, you can watch it ad free on Vimeo on demand. You can you can check it out there rent if you rent it, and uh, we'll have a Blu-ray disc coming soon. Yeah, so there's lots of ways you can support Ansel. The reason I bring up the other two, the Blu-ray and, and Vimeo on demand, is it helps support independent filmmakers so they can keep creating more work. But the scene that I'm going to talk about when you watch this movie, it's the scene in the car between him and Todd Tarantula, which is just. Oh, it's, it's just Selby owning the stage, so to speak, or owning the back seat, and how he just utilizes body language, the cane, and everything. I just, I just love it. I, I watched it twice yeah. now, and it just that, that scene still is, oh, it's so, it's so David Selby, so awesome. <laughs> it's, 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 it's a fun scene. It's the scene that's lasted. I've been waiting so many years to shoot that scene alone of, of them in the car, and um, yeah, David totally killed it. We had lots of fun. Now, listeners, we recommend that you see Todd Tarantula. You know, uh, you can watch it free on Tubi. You can watch it ad-free other ways. Or you can get the Blu-ray, which will have bonus features and stuff like that. But right now, we want to learn, learn a little more about Ansel. So I got five questions for you. My little take on the classic five. What classic horror films, Ansel, influenced you the most? So if, if you can pick one or two or three what were the ones that you saw growing up as a filmmaker that really like spurred that interest? Uh, well, the two Dark Shadows movies, I think, would be obvious uh, beginnings. House of Dark Shadows and Night of Dark Shadows. When I, I was five years old, I saw House. And um, uh, just just the way that I, the atmosphere of the film, um, the, the sort of sledgehammer, blood and thunder approach that Dan Curtis used in House of Dark Shadows it rattled me <laughs> and I was very, very scared at the time when I was a little, little boy watching it. Uh, I hadn't seen anything quite like it, but I, I, I knew I liked the feeling that it was giving me. And, um, another, uh, Phantom of the Opera, uh, I, at this point, really any of the versions, Claude Rains, Lon Chaney, Robert England, Herbert Lom. Um, but Claude Rains was the first one that I saw and uh, yes, there's lots of singing and yes, it's, it's Universal trying to be an MGM musical, but I loved his mask and I loved the look of him um, and 
that that sort of set me on a path when I was a little kid. Um, another one, Creature from the Black Lagoon. Awesome. That's, I think, a perfect movie. Um, what's another? Uh, I'm I'm going to throw a ringer in and say The Uninvited, uh, which was a movie that took me forever to locate because there wasn't a, a, an accessible VHS copy at the time when I was a kid. Um, but that that gothic romance haunted house I, I, I seem I seem to have revisited the uninvited far more often than the haunting um and the innocence um when I kind of think about it. But uh yeah, I think we'll we'll save those titles for now. Otherwise I'll just keep talking. <laughs> <laughs> well there's tons of there's tons of films I'm sure that influenced you, but it's just I'm just no right off the bat with being that this is Monster Kid Radio. Anytime the creature from the Black Lagoon gets mentioned, it automatically moves yeah. whoever is brings it up in higher status with Derek. So yeah. I'm sure, yeah. you know, even when Derek listens back to this, he, he's going to be smiling when he heard when he heard creature from the Black Lagoon. <laughs> it's, 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 it's a classic. It's the ultimate classic. And also, I'll say Val Luton's films. Val Luton's films are huge influences, I think, on on what I've tried to do when I do make a thriller. Um, of because uh, it's noir, he, he delves into noir, and it's not just horror, it's not just supernatural, um, it's psychology and sexual frustration and stuff like that, which uh, I like to play with. And uh, yeah, okay, I'll shut up <laughs> <laughs> now. There's a lot of people that would call certain movies bad movies or not good or whatever, and then there's other people that love those movies, and, and everybody has a movie that's a favorite, another person would be like, oh, that's not good at all. So I'm curious, looking at the classic horror monster films, what is a movie that is considered by the general public as bad that you know they're wrong and is really good? <laughs> I'm going to... There's one, <laughs> there's one movie that's bad that I like but I know that it's bad and I'm, it's called uh, the curse of the crimson altar. And in the U S it is known as the crimson cult. And it has maybe the greatest classic horror cast that could have been assembled with Forrest Karloff, Christopher Lee, Michael Goff and Barbara Steele and um, uh, Rupert Davies and Patrick McNeil. And it's a, it's influenced by HP Lovecraft's dreams in the witch house. And it's an AIP English production that is a psychedelic, uh, slice of, of English Gothic and it's a train wreck of a film but I like it um, uh, but the movie that I think is actually really good uh, and and people should reevaluate um, I've been thinking about this film recently The Brotherhood of Satan from 1971 which is a, an independent drive-in satanic thriller uh, produced by L.Q. Jones who also did A Boy and His Dog and uh, it's with uh, Strother Martin who is this duplicitous priest that is basically harvesting the bodies of children in this uh, southwestern town to implant the souls of these elderly Satanists into these children. And it's a very dreamlike, surreal, and very intelligent film for for this drive-in fair. And uh, a lot more going on in every single frame and, and in, in every single scene in this film than, than, than really, uh, that it has any right to be <laughs> and, and anybody has given it any credit. So I'm going to say brotherhood of Satan. I'm not going to argue Good with movie. you there. I enjoyed that movie myself and mainly because of Struffer Martin, you know, it, 
his acting is just <clears throat> he he's always, always good. He's always good. And when he gets and when he gets a good script and he can just sink his teeth into, he can really just yeah. go for it. And it could be a bad script and he can really make it he can make, make it he can make it work somehow. It's like he's like a yeah. Ricardo Montalban. He's like another actor who can take stuff that's not that great, but yet when you hear him say it, it's like spinning gold. He makes it, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he makes it work. Yeah. Some actors are just gifted that way. And um and that's why they usually end up in genre. Uh like Peter Cushing. Mm-hmm. Well, you can't, you know, who, who can say anything bad about Mr. Cushing? Yeah. Now, speaking that this is an interesting segue into this next question. What actors, whether male or female, from the classic heyday of the genre films, like horror, monster movies, would you have loved to have worked with as a director that you no longer can? Uh, I, my, my knee-jerk reaction is going to be Vincent Price because he's Vincent Price. I don't think that there, there needs any further explanation <laughs> besides that. Uh, somebody else, though, who else would I really love to... Uh, I mean, again, like I brought up Claude Rains as a phantom. Claude Rains was a magnificent actor. Just just work with him, you know, not even in a, a genre uh, script. Just, just as an... To work with him as an actor would be great. There's... there's 50 million people that I'm going to think of as soon as we move on from this question, but, but you know, you know, we'll, we'll I'll, probably, we'll I'll throw one out to you as a, a, a female that I would love to see you have worked with Barbara Stanwyck. Yeah. Yeah. She was a, she was a tough cookie and she could, she, she had range and she could, I mean, yeah, no, Barbara Stanwyck. Yeah. That's, that's, that's a list talent that you can't we don't have someone like her today uh yeah that's a, when i was a kid my introduction to barbara stand-up was the wrong way it was the night walker <laughs> when i was a little kid and i still love that movie and, and big movie score but uh yeah son, uh, uh sorry wrong number or baby face or um even the big valley yeah that, that's that's yeah she could play everything and she elevates everything. Like we talked about actors that elevate everything. Yeah. She was one of the best that can make anything work, regardless of how crazy or ridiculous it might seem when you look at it down the road. But she was in, she, yeah. was, she was wonderful. That would be somebody I would love to have seen you had a chance to work with. I think the yeah. two of you would have made gold. Yeah, maybe we did in a past life. I don't know. <laughs> well, yeah, no, no. she was great. Now, what classic script, you know, or, or it's not classic script or any script from the, um, the classic era, because, because Derek focuses more on that, with the monster horror films, would you like to have had a chance to put your spin on it, so to speak? You know, because we always have these artists that will take older songs and they'll put their new wrinkle or spin on it. What right, like classic a, movie no. or script would you like to have your own take? Well... I mean, I don't know that you would consider this a script so much as it would just be another adaptation. Um, but I, it's like the end game is to do Phantom of the Opera at some point um, and do it, do it like the book and do it as a, as a gothic ghost story mystery. And with multiple conflicting uh, ghost stories, a sort, you know, where you know, various people in the opera house tell their own versions of what's going on. Um, is there, is there a ghost? Does this ghost exist or not? 
Um, so I, I mean, like I, that's not a script; that's a novel. But that's that's uh, the you know that's the end goal. <laughs> Phantom of the Opera. I would like to see. I can see it now. Ansel Farage's Phantom of the Opera. <laughs> On location at Paris with IMAX cameras. That's that's the plan. That's always been my plan. But that's money, so we'll get there eventually. Yeah, you, 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 yeah. Have me, you have me thinking. It's like, oh man, if you could pull that off, that would just be, oh, oh, ooh. <laughs> I got goosebumps. That's Universal Studios money right there. <laughs> that, that's a, that. Those are some big dollars going. That, that's some. That's some big stuff. Yeah. Now definitely. One last question. This one's going to tie into the next movie, that the movie we're going to be talking about. What cinematographer, because usually you do your own cinematography, but if you had a cinematographer from the classic era, who would you love to have film your movie to, to put your vision? Jack. Jack Cardiff. Jack Cardiff. And if I can't afford Jack Cardiff, can I get Floyd Crosby? <laughs> <laughs> So you get kind of like two different, very different styles, but both brilliant craftsmen and um, they both understand surreal. They both understand color and how to use color in a, in a heightened psychological state. Uh, and if I really can't get them, um, then, uh, oh man, John Coquillion, Co- I, I said his name wrong. But uh, he shot Witchfinder General, and he shot the Changeling and Straw Dogs, and uh, yeah, that, that would be that would be cool. Well, that would be. I could just I can only I can only imagine if you had Jack Cardiff, you know, filming. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> and the reason, listeners, the movie we're talking about that Ansel picked out is Mark of the Vampire from 1935. And the reason I went with the cinematographer question as a trans as a segue into the movie is the cinematography is done by James Wong Howe, who mm-hmm. is listed as one of the top 10 international cinematographers that have influenced cinema, cinema in the, ever. And he was nominated Legendary. 10 times for Best Cinematography, one twice for The Rose Tattoo and HUD. Uh, and, and he was doing The Mark of the Vampire. And I just find it just fascinating because until I watched this movie, which was for the first time, I did not realize anything about James Wong Howe. And I was like, you know, doing the research and looking back into it. And I'm just like, sometimes, sometimes you yeah. feel like an idiot when you go back and you look at a film and you start seeing, how did I not know all this and this and this, but that that's the beauty of learning. You know, you, you can't know yeah. everything. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Discovering film history in pieces. Yeah. And James Wong Howe, he was, I mean, this was one of his early films, but even back then he was already regarded as, as one of the premier cinematographers in Hollywood in the thirties. And he was an Asian American on top of that which was kind of unheard of at that time. And, uh, and he, I mean, uh, the, the way that, that the movie is captured is, is what captured my attention when I was seven years old and I saw this movie for the first time. So I guess maybe, maybe I'll, I'll let you properly start the conversation and we'll dive into Mark of the Vampire. Oh, Mark of the Vampire. Well, you picked the movie out. And like I said, I'd never seen it before. And I knew, I've heard about it. I knew about it. I knew about the twist. So I knew about the twist yeah. going in. Um, <coughs> excuse me, which didn't change my enjoyment of the movie whatsoever. Uh, and that kind of stuff. But it was just, it was nice to watch and sit back and enjoy. So I'm glad you picked it. Um, we, For those wondering, we knew this one, this one had not been done by Monster Kid Radio before because... 
Kenny keeps a list of movies that have not been done on Monster Kid Radio that are the classic thing that could be done. So I asked Ansel, pick from these. It's a long, it's a, it's a lengthy list of movies. And as soon as he heard Market of Vampires, like, let's go with that one. And he just jumped for it. Yeah. And so why did you jump on that one compared to, I think there was like 30-ish movies that were on the list. I didn't count them, but I think it was like 30-ish. There was, and there were some pretty good titles on that list too that I, that I considered. But yeah, Market of Vampire, the, the, it is not, to me, it's not October, it's not Halloween, unless I've watched Market of Vampire at least once. This past October, I did watch it like three times. It is only an hour, so it's not you know that much of a stretch. But it's it's uh, I saw it for the first time. I was like six or seven years old. Uh, Turner Classic Movies ran it um, in I'm going to say 1996 or seven. Uh, it was right around the same time that they showed Kevin Brownlow's documentary Universal Horror, and. Uh, they showed Dracula, the Mummy, the Invisible Man, the Wolfman, and then Mark of the Vampire. I remember that lineup distinctly. It was, it was the first time I really got to see all these movies, and I had no idea what Mark of the Vampire was other than they said vampires and Bella Lugosi was in it, and he was in Dracula. And okay, great. And uh, went into it as a blind little kid. Uh, I mean, I wasn't blind. I, mean, I didn't. Know. <laughs> I didn't know what I was watching at the time. I could definitely see the television. No, no, no Ansel, so, Ansel, you were blind. In this movie, you went there, your parents took you, to set you in front of the TV, and suddenly, I can see! I can see! Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> My x-ray vision. Yeah, that's why I'm wearing glasses now, all these years later. Yeah, I saw it, and didn't know where it was going, didn't know what, didn't know about the twist, didn't even know it was a remake of London After Midnight, uh, which I believe I knew of that title and had seen an image or two of Lon Chaney's vampire makeup. But I, I was like six years old. So I was still just learning all these things at the time. Um, and, uh, anyway, I, the, the cinematography, obviously the atmosphere that, that James Longhow and Todd Browning set up and Cedric Gibbons as, as the art director, um, MGM, I'll, I'll, I'll give a little bit of, of film history feed uh, blowback on this. So uh, Todd Browning had just made Freaks for MGM, and it was an absolute disaster. And this was to be his comeback film. So it was chosen, okay, what we're going to do is, is choose a safe property. And London After Midnight was his biggest hit at the studio with Lon Chaney, the murder mystery silent film from 1927. And... Uh, Lon Chaney had already passed away in 1930, so they split the Chaney role into three different roles, played by uh, Lionel Barrymore, uh, Bella Lugosi, and Lionel Atwell. And uh, so you you have the star of Dracula in a comeback vampire film from the director of Dracula, with all of Metro Golden Mayor's resources thrown behind it, and all of the big contract players and everybody, and all this money, uh, in an effort to kind of give Todd Browning a comeback film. And uh, so all that production value really shows on the screen and, and the evolution between Dracula and Mark of the Vampire in, in Browning's um, comfortability with sounds and, um, and with James Wong, how really like 
pushing the camera. There's a there's a whole thing that I'd like to dispel while we're at it that Todd Browning never uses, never pushes or moves the camera in Dracula, and the Dracula is very stagey. I used to follow victim to that same sort of criticism of Dracula, and that it's a very talky, stagey film, but it's not. Um, there are a lot of very particular directorial choices in Dracula that are clearly Todd Browning's choices. They're not Carl Freund's, because if you look at Todd Browning's other work, those choices and those motifs and those set camera setups all echo throughout Browning's work. So Browning was clearly directing Dracula, contrary to what David Manners has said and what we've all kind of believed over the years. And so taking that in mind, the evolution of that into Mark of the Vampire is, is like he's pulling out all the stops. He's directing this film as if it's the first and last movie that he'll ever be allowed to direct again. And, um, and that therefore like all the splendor, all the, the beautiful atmosphere and, and haunting moments of, of the film are some, I think the best moments of the thirties horror. And, uh, it, it came out the same year as Bride of Frankenstein and it's always overshadowed by Bride of Frankenstein. But I think this movie is a very, very strong rival to Bride of Frankenstein for maybe the best horror film of 1935. Um, it's it's a it is a it's pure gothic classic. It set the template for every vampire girl. The look of a, any vampire girl to come comes from Luna, and the the sequence that none of us ever forget when we see it is her flying with the wings. And I remember as a little boy sitting there in front of the TV, and that happened, and just thinking, "Whoa, what? How how is this possible? This is so cool!" And um, yeah, okay. Now you turn, Steven. I talk too much. <laughs> <laughs> well, I agree with you. Carol Borland as Luna was just, when you see her and that look, the way they, they costumed her, the makeup, the, her, yeah. her, her um, walking around in that, like, uh, like, like the undead was sending that template for a lot of things to go. And there's movies I'll see, and like I was watching, it, I was thinking, that's the look that you see when you see Japanese horror, you know, some of these movies where they got mm-hmm. the, the person in the white outfit with the long hair and things like that. Yeah. So this is something that's still influencing movies that are coming out in recent years. And it's, yeah. it's, it's kind of nice when, it, when you research and find out this was like one of the first or one of the first portrayals of somebody that way. And I was just like, it's so, it's, it's so classic and how it just stays with us. Um, <coughs> using your example of bride, you know, again, another iconic character that stays with us forever, you know, the way she looks. Yeah. And, it, and even though they only have small parts in the movie, you know, like they're only, they're, their screen time is very limited, but the look is iconic and memorable. Yeah. Yeah. And I was surprised too when I saw the wings, I knew the twist. And I'm like, well, how does she have wings? It was just, it was just right. going right. in that. I'm like, what, what is going on here? And, and the effect, 1935, that effect holds well, holds up well today. I can only imagine when you saw it in 1935, you'd be in your seats in the theater going, what? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And even, I mean, they, they this since the film was a remake of London After Midnight, this moment occurred in London After Midnight too, and that's 1927. So Browning is, has perfected that effect since 1927 but i'd love to see what that i mean obviously we would all love to see london after midnight but that moment in particular because there are no surviving stills of that flying sequence from 
1927. So what did she look like there? How did that moment look? But uh, also something you, you, you said that, that triggered me about the, the iconic nature of, of these characters. Um, you have Bela Lugosi as a vampire that is basically Dracula and his vampiric daughter, Luna. And uh, it, Bride of Frankenstein, yes, is a huge runaway success for Universal. So of course they want to sequels to more monster films. But they start thinking of Dracula's daughter. Well, technically, David Selznick started thinking of Dracula's daughter. David Selznick is at MGM at this time. MGM is producing Mark of the Vampire. Here is Dracula, in essence, with a daughter. This film still even influenced the Universal monster movies that way. Uh, but we don't think of that. We don't give Mark of the Vampire the credit that it deserves, mostly because everybody hates the twists, which I think is unfair. I didn't know. Most everybody hates the twist. I didn't know that. Yeah. A lot of people are like, you sit through <laughs> this movie and, um, you're let down because it's it's not what was promised, and um, but it never bothered me because it, it there's so much more to enjoy and appreciate that you're watching a fairy tale, you're watching a ghost story. This is not real. We know it's not real. So just enjoy the atmospherics, enjoy the magic show that Todd Browning is setting up for you because that's that's another thing of, of these themes. He comes from the carnival background. He's a showman. Um, he he wants to show you that um, the 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 magic show, the play that is being occurred for a, a, an audience, and the machinations and, and the the Mission Impossible style uh, 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 practicalities behind doing doing a, a performance. Um, I have no idea if that sense is making sense, but like in films like The Unknown or The Show or Miracles for Sale where he uh, deals with magicians or carnival shows or and he's always presenting to the audience, this is the fakery, this is the trickery that the audience within the story is unaware of. So Mark of the Vampire fits that completely. We are presented with this show of vampires, but that is not what is actually occurring. There's a whole other investigation at play. Um, with the lone exception, I go back to Dracula, where he presents it as, this is not real, this is not real, this cannot be. But the twist is, no, Dracula really is real. He really is a blood-sucking demon that's lived for centuries. So what we what you see is not always uh, the truth. Yeah. So I'm guessing this is probably one of the first examples of, back in film history, of subverting your expectations audiences where they're coming in thinking it's going to be one thing. And then it's just like, no, we're going to do this other thing. And yeah. either, either you're going to go with it, which I think you and I both did. I had no issues with it. Uh, but then yeah. again, I was, I was I, my viewing, I didn't know the twist was coming, but it didn't bother me at all. I, did, I was just kind of wondering right. how they were going to pull it off. And uh, it worked, it, it worked for me. So I, I can see, but yeah. I can see where some people, when people, when, when, Filmmakers do that. I can, see, you know, when they go with the non-conventional ending or against what everything is leading up to in the screen, yeah. it can really, it can really be off-putting for people. It's, it's, it's as if you were a diner and you're expecting a certain meal, and they, they, they kind of, oh, and you're getting this yeah, instead. You can really, it can ruin your meal. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're in a sense betraying your audience after everything that you've set up. But if you pay attention, it's the, the answer, the clues are there. 
Um, and they were disappointed back in 1935. That was a lot of the criticism in the reviews too. But um, and I, I believe they were also disappointed in in London after midnight in 1927 for the same reasons of the whole thing is so implausible that it made no sense. Um, but if you were able to go along with the show, quote unquote, the show that Browning is putting on for you, then you'd have fun. And that's all really what it's about. It's a diversion of, it's a magic show and, uh, it's, it's 60 minutes. So <laughs> what's the harm? You could do a whole lot worse yourself. <laughs> It, it it moves briskly along. I mean, it doesn't, you know, so you're not going to have any lag time going into the movie. And there are, yeah. one of the things I find interesting with it, there's parts where I wasn't sure if this is supposed to be a comedy or if it's supposed to be serious, you know, because they're, especially early on, because they're, they're playing up some of the scenes or some of the actors are really yeah. going for it. And I'm like, so which way am I supposed to take this? And then and, and the movie moved forward. So it was, Serious enough where it was set in a village where everybody believed in vampires, but certain people didn't. I loved the Inspector Newman, Lionel Atwell yeah. character, because he, he's just, you just, you just love him. And, and, and suddenly in comes Professor Zeeland from nowhere. He just, just, just from left field, he shows up. Boom. Yeah. There he is. Yeah. And your Von Helsing type character. And Lionel Barrymore is just. Stealing the <laughs> <laughs> And also, I got to say, the Blu-ray, Warner Archive finally, thankfully, put this movie out on Blu-ray and did a, an amazing restoration on it. I've seen this movie. This is, I will confess, the, probably the movie I watched the most throughout the year just because it's an hour long and sometimes it's like, it's just, it's so rich in atmosphere and I can turn my mind off and enjoy it. I've seen this movie countless times. This is the first time I ever noticed he's got five o'clock shadow on his face and stubble and like Lionel Atwell hasn't shaved at all during the movie. And I was like amazed by that. I know that's, that's a minor, very trivial detail, but yeah, I don't know. <laughs> well, he was supposed to be playing a character that was up all night in a sense. Yeah. So that, that would be interesting. Like, you know, cause I guess he was just trying to get that image across like, later on the movie. Yeah. Like, I haven't shaved. I've been doing all this. I only took a couple hour nap and now we got to go hunt them down. And, and yeah, now I could, I could see where some people would be thrown off because some things are thrown at you and you have to adapt on the fly as a viewer because there's there, there's suddenly there's hypnotism coming on you know coming into play and the, the characters that were dead are coming back and and other you know you have to really start rolling with the film to get it because it's it, there's no real explanation and that and that could yeah. be because they kept it at the hour length that maybe if it had five, 10 minutes more, there could have been a little more setup or maybe they could have cued the audience to what's going on with a little more, you know, and maybe that would have made it more successful at the time and with, and with other viewers, you know, I'm just trying to look yeah. at it from both points of view. Um, it didn't bother me and I, I enjoyed it, but I'm just trying to think, you know, if maybe he had it at 70 minutes with depending with the 10 minutes that he put in, that could have, filled in some of those little quirks that people have problems with? What do you think? Um, honestly, I, I don't think even if, I mean, the film was longer and they, they cut like 20 minutes of, of comic relief, but having studied the film and 
there's a new book out. I want to actually plug uh, London After Midnight, The Lost Film by Daniel Kitley. And uh, Danny's a good friend and he spent years researching London After Midnight and um, uncovered seven original nitrate frames from London after not like just still, but like genuine frames of the film itself. Um, and the screenplay and uh, it's the, it's an exhaustive thoroughly researched book on London after midnight and vicariously Mark of the vampire. So having sort of looked into the story of London after midnight that Browning is remaking, um, a lot of the same plot issues and story beats that are, kind of confusing and nonsensical originate there as well. So I don't think even if, if the film had been 20 minutes longer, uh, I don't know that we would have still gotten more um, set up and more time for explanations. I think it, it, the story just simply was like that and um, there was no changing it. And there was never any, the, the big legend is Count Mora and Luna committed incest and then they, he, he strangled her and, and shot himself resulting in the bullet wound that Bella Lugosi has in the film um, and there, everybody says oh they shot that and they cut that and that was scripted no it never was it was never scripted it was never shot it was a an idea floated by Guy Indoor who's one of the writers but it was never anything like concretely written down um, so yeah I think a lot of the a lot of the mysteries that we're going to call plot holes that it's just inherently baked into the plot. And the way I, the way I look at it as when I was watching it, I don't mind not being told everything because you're following the point of view of, I'm, I'm guessing in this case, we're, we're following kind of the POV of what Fedor Vincent, you know, Henry Wadsworth character. Yeah. He had no, cause he had no clue what was going on. You know, he's being told there's these right. vampires and all this stuff. And, so we're, right. we're kind of like him and we're not necessarily cause he wasn't in there like as his point of POV, but we are given as much information as he is as what's going on. So, you know, then you have to figure out, okay, what's happening here and there. And if we're supposed to believe, yes, these are vampires, they are doing this and this is what is happening. And I do like how early on they do have the Baron as a suspect. It's, it's one of the things the inspector mm-hmm. finds out, uh, not for the motivation that they originally thought it was going to be, but very close to it. And, yeah. you know, and that kind of stuff. And, and the Baron Otto von Winden, <laughs> what a name. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And he played it so well where, you know, he comes off as this person who's like, um, when he's kind telling, of bumbling and afraid. Yeah, but when he's telling the servants, like when the when the per, when the um yeah. when 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 the fatality happened, he goes, "Oh, but one person kneeling down. No, 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 don't be, don't don't kneel down. You know, this, we got to do this. They're going to come talk to us all and all this stuff. And I think that should have been our first clue that he was like probably yeah. like, don't be too sad about this. Yeah, yeah. He says, "Get up <laughs> off your feet. yeah, very sharply. Yeah, yeah. Um." No, yeah, I, I, uh, Gene Herschel, I have to say, um, my favorite Gene Herschel, he's in Grand Hotel, but I really like him in, in The Mask of Fu Manchu. It's also with Henry Wadsworth. He's, he's got some great, over-the-top, unrepeatable dialogue in The Mask of Fu Manchu, and he's very funny in it. 
Yeah, you know, some some things, some dialogues don't age well than compared to they other things. They don't age well. <laughs> um, uh, and and that's just the way, and that's just the way it is. You know, it's yeah. Uh, <laughs> excuse me, Elizabeth Allen as Irina Oriton. Um, what did you think of her? Because I, I enjoy I enjoyed her. It, it, it's kind of first you think she has no clue what's going on. And you find that she's in yeah. on the everything, everything, um, and the yeah. good's on the side of good, not evil. For listeners that have never seen right. it, um, I remember when I was a kid, I liked her better than Helen Chandler as Nina um, because they're basically they look kind of similar. They got the same hair, they got the similar wardrobe, um, which is all I'm sure by design. Uh, and, um, I mean, she's, I, her, I, I love her in, uh, the same year MGM produced the Tale of Two Cities in 1935. Um, and with Ronald Coleman and for my money, I would say that's the best film version of Tale of Two Cities. And she plays, um, Lucy, and uh, Lucy Manette in that. And, um, uh, and ironically, her father in Tale of Two Cities played, uh, the original Baron the, the the murderer in London after midnight uh, in Tale of Two Cities. So MGM. Um, uh, anyway, uh, Elizabeth Allen. No, she's. I. I think she's. She's. I guess because she's in on the whole conspiracy, she's not as. I'm going to use the word annoying, and I hate saying that annoying. Like Helen Chandler's Mina, <laughs> and it's because she knows what's up. She's she's playing a game. So there's more thought behind her eyes and there's more conniving and, and manipulating rather than just simply being a victim. I agree with you. She's not just this damsel in distress type person. Like you're yeah. led off to believe, Oh, she's so weak. She's so frail. We need to do this and need to do that. And Henry Wadsworth is the damsel in distress and Mark is a vampire. Yes, he is. <laughs> <laughs> Which is funny when you find out later on, you know, because nobody would tell him he had no idea, and you know, because I guess they figured. Yeah, don't. He's sick. Don't tell him anything. <laughs> it's not worth it. <laughs> and, and and how? And I mean, there are there are some plot conveniences, like they were able to get a dead ringer for her her father. Yeah. On short notice, which the odds of that happening in real life are extremely remote, but I mean, you know, well, I just go actually, with Actually, I think it's supposed to be, it's supposed to be a year in between because that, that opening murder was 19. Cause he says, uh, when they have the inquiry is in 1934, I remember them distinctly saying that. And so it's 1935. That's true. It's, it's a year that, late, but still finding somebody a year later. Yeah, they, they, they were fast. <laughs> they were fast. <laughs> <laughs> and, the amount of money involved with pulling off this whole thing to get him to confess. I mean, that is, that is, it's almost when you look at the super villains, you know, like in James Bond, when you pull these very convoluted plots, how they're going to pull off this heist, except this is the good guys doing it to get the bad guy where, you know, uh, any number, any countless things can go wrong. You need like a hundred things to go perfect in order for this to play out. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. There's so many, there, there are many moments. I mean, the, the flying sequence we'll use again, there's no point in that really happening. 
they weren't even there. Like Lionel Barrymore and Gene Herschel were nowhere near the castle when this vampiric activity started. And they only by sheer happenstance happens to look through the window and witness Luna flying with her bat wings. So, yeah, the, I mean, that's that's part of where you just have to turn your mind off and accept that you're 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 watching a magic act. Um, uh, but one of the one of the oh man, I I forgot what I was going to say. I'm <laughs> sorry. <laughs> you can cut that bit. <laughs> well, you know, when you get to my age, you forget things all the time. <laughs> uh, there, there's one actor I, I can't remember his name, but the guy who played the um, the butler or the the, the male servant. Yeah. Uh, I think I mean I think in the film his name was Carl, but I can't remember his his actor name. Yeah, but what I loved about him, which you find in hindsight, because first he's like, oh my god, what a what a, for lack of a better term, a wuss. You know, he's just like, yeah, he, he can't even say the word. <laughs> yeah, you know that kind of. But stuff. he's in on it too. But he's in on it, and it, which which really changes everything because now you're like, oh, so he was acting bad on purpose to sell this to the Baron and overplay it all out and all that stuff. The same thing with the maid and all the other stuff. It's just like, it's like, wow, this sure. is, it really changes everything, your whole mindset. And you can see his, when, when it's all becoming unrevealed at the end, you can see yeah. how he changed as a character. Cause now it's like, Oh, I don't have to act that way anymore. So something I was going to say about the maid in London after midnight, we learned that the maid is actually an undercover police woman, a police uh, officer. So I wonder if in some of the cut material from Mark of the Vampire, if they revealed that as well, that um, the maid, who's uh, Leila, I can't remember her last name. The actress's first name was Leila, and she was also in um, Dr. X as the maid as well. Bennett, Leila um, Bennett. She too, Leila Bennett, yes, yeah, thank you. Um, she, uh, if her character was revealed as a policewoman, because then it would explain when they say they saw Lugosi's vampire materialize in the hallway, they're lying to Gene Herschel to, to just scare him. This event actually did not occur because a similar thing happens in London after midnight where the maid says the vampire, the man in the beaver hat played by Lon Chaney materialized in the bedroom and attacked them. Um, and it's all a ruse to just scare the Baron. And, uh, and then at the end of that film, it was revealed that she's actually a policewoman undercover. So I wonder if in Mark the Vampire, it was the, the same twist was revealed that, that she was a, a policewoman. And I remember what I was going to say earlier. The whole thing has the idea of Andy Hardy. Let's literally put on a show for <laughs> when you said the amount of work that went into putting on this, this thing to just scare this guy when all they needed to do was hypnotize him and get him to confess. Um, it, it was Andy Hardy jumped up this plan. Yeah, it was kind of funny. They were all they weren't all in with Plan A. You know, let's let's throw all yeah. the resources, throw all the money, and then Plan B. You were you were, it is cloudy, it is cloudy. Yeah, <laughs> and he's hypnotized, and then boom, bang, bing, bada, boom, reenacts the whole thing, and you're like, oh, we're done. <laughs> yeah, I yeah. thought that was like, and they're packing the wings away. And, and then you finally get you finally get yeah. Lugosi to speak. I mean, because I don't think he spoke until then. Mm -hmm. No, he only has the one line. But in the trailer, he never stops talking, which is kind of cool. And um, 
and actually in the trailer for Mark of the Vampires, you get a longer glimpse of Luna flying. You see her from behind and she curves around the castle and then turns. You see more of the wings and that's always cool. Yeah. Oh, that would be cool. I'm surprised they, it's like those trailers we still see nowadays where you see stuff and it's not in the movie and you know, it's, and it, yeah. it's something cool and you're just like, you watch the movie. You're like, where, where is it? You know, my wife was doing that one. I forgot what movie yeah. it was, but she was like, I saw the trailer. We, we haven't seen this scene. This, you know, I said, and not everything in the trailer is always in the movie. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Night of dark shadows has a great, we're going off topic, but night of dark shadows has a trailer that is just filled with all these great moments that only exist in the extended director's cut. Uh, and, uh, and you can glimpse them all in this, in this like two minute trailer that MGM cut together. Um, but yeah, that's always, that's always a nice Easter egg when you get to see moments that didn't make the, didn't make the, especially from something from like 1935 that would not have survived the years uh, since. One of the things I was noticing with the movie well, we talked about the cinematography and how things are moving around and how they're doing it with, you know, like we said, or James Wong, Howe and Todd Browning directing and getting those certain yeah. shots. It, it just, it just, that's part of why I think I want a movie that had those extra parts in it. I mean, it'd be lovely to see her flying around the castle. Cause that could have been how certain characters would have seen her, you know, yeah. do it because it would have been an exterior shot and, and that kind of thing where they can yeah. have it set up and people could be like, what's that, what's that flying around? And then we get to the close up where for us, we can see it was Luna doing that flying around. And I yeah. thought it was interesting when I looked up Luna's character, the actress earlier for research, she was in very, very little film wise. You know, this is, this is like what was, yeah. she, only, she only has a few credits to her name and it's just, you yeah. would think you'd have more from a role like this. Yeah. She's just basically, she was based, Carol Borland was basically just Luna and she got cast because, uh, Bela basically got her cast. She was friends with him and, um, she was a fan that, that, um, was smart enough and sexy enough that he was intrigued by her and they used to hang out and, um, he got her the role and that kind of like, that was what she wanted to be. She wanted to be a vampire with Dracula and she got it. So she didn't need to forge ahead and, and carve a, a Hollywood career. Although I might be wrong um, from what I remember reading from Gregory William Mank in Hollywood Cauldron, his excellent history on all these films. Um, I think she might've tried for a couple other things, but Hollywood wasn't for her. And she wrote a sequel to Dracula called um, Countess Dracula as a, um, a novel. And uh, and then there's some there's some great photos from her at the Team of Lygia premiere in 1964, and she's dressed as Luna, again standing there with Vincent Price and Vampira, and um, I think Bob Burns is in a monster mask, and um, it's it, yeah. So she she was Luna, she owned Luna, and she loved playing Luna, and that was her Hollywood dream, and she accomplished it. They didn't need to. She didn't need to be Captain Hepburn. <laughs> we have. <laughs> Well, I mean, yeah, not everybody. Can, there's only one Catherine Hepburn. I mean, that's just. Yeah. <laughs> well, I guess you go with. Yeah. I want to be a vampire. I want to be with Bella Lugosi, and you get you check that box off right off the bat. You're pretty much like okay, and you become an icon. You're an icon. You're an icon, and people are still basing that look off of. Yeah. Decades and decades and decades later, there's model kits of her. 
with the wings. There's posters still of her. She is the most iconic vampire girl. I mean, there are the vampire brides in Dracula, but nobody ever really kind of thinks about them or, or you know, spreads their image across. It's always Luna. And also, it's almost always a photo of Lugosi from Mark of the Vampire with that bullet wound that they'll say is Dracula. And then I have to get on there and be like, no, 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 it's Mark the Vampire. Because my OCD won't allow me to let that one go. But, um, but yeah, no, she, she's an icon. And, um, and uh, uh, Gloria Holden was, was I, I love Dracula's daughter, and it is a, it's a very good film. But there's something so much more fascinating, I think, about Luna. I think it's because she never speaks. We don't know, you know? She's a mystery. And plus, she's got bat wings, so that's all. <laughs> she got the fly. Bonus. She got the fly. She, she gets to fly. Yeah. Oh, I'll tell you, it's it's you know, I really enjoyed the movie. I'm glad you picked it. I'm surprised that Derek in the in the, in the show all these decades, like they've been going on for over a decade. He's been going on for a long, long time, and I'm surprised they hadn't covered it. You know, it's another film. I'm surprised Kenny told me they haven't done a spe- a, a separate episode yet on Frankenstein the Boris yeah. Karloff one at all. It's been part of other ones, but he said it's never had its own moment. So maybe Thank by me are. saying yeah. this, people can be like, Oh, Frankenstein's available. And other people can, you know, reach out to Derek and say, Hey, can I guest host? And we do Frankenstein, but um, reach out to Kenny and he, he can tell you a lot of the movies that haven't been covered yet. And that way you know, we can fill in these gaps. Yeah. I, I covered all my points. And I just want to make sure we covered all your points. So is there any points left that you want to talk about with the movie? Cause I've, I've hit all mine. I think my favorite, um, uh, my favorite thing besides everything else that we've discussed is the sound effects, the sound design in this movie, but the winds that sounds like lost souls is howling or is it wolves or I, I don't know. I'm going to call it the wind. It's this great moaning. That's just constantly throughout the present throughout the film. Um, and I'd like, it's a great sound effect and, um, that, I mean, it's a film is the sum of all of its parts. So you've got James Longhouse photography, you've got Todd Browning's just direct the big picture overall, uh, Cedric Gibbons art direction and, um, uh, Douglas Shearer, Norma Shearer's brother doing sound. So all these craftsmen coming together to create this atmospheric October, perfect for October experience and um it's i just it's a movie that deserves a little bit more love and so what if there's no real vampires it's 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 a atmospheric harmless 60 minutes that um yeah it just deserves more love and this brand new blu-ray again thank you warner archive for finally putting it out on blu-ray this brand new blu-ray looks amazing this movie has never looked better it probably didn't look this good back in 1935. Um, so yeah, definitely, definitely check it out. And yeah, that's my pitch. Well, I agree with your pitch and, uh, and listeners, <coughs> excuse me, not just check this movie out, but also you want to check out Todd Tarantula, you know, so, yeah. cause it's available on Tubi with ads for free. Or if you want to bypass those ads and have an uninterrupted cinematic experience, they can also go yeah. where, Ansel? Uh, you can rent it on Vimeo On Demand. And uh, you simply pull up uh, Vimeo and type up Todd Tarantula, and it will be there. 
And you can ultimately access it from any kind of platform on my website, hollinsworthproductions.com, H-O-L-L-I-N-S-W-O-R-T-H Productions, uh, where you can find Todd Tarantula or Loon Lake, as Stephen has brought up, but also with David Shelby, um, or Will and Liz, which is my non the is my romance uh and uh, all my other work is all there and uh yeah any support helps independent filmmaking and hopefully we can make another and i'm looking forward to the blu-ray which you said will be coming out sometime in the future yes sometimes sometime this year we're i mean the, we're, we're just now on tv so that's a big hurdle but now it's uh the blu-ray will be coming i mean no later than the fall i would assume but it's coming Oh, nice Halloween purchase, possibly. Yeah, yeah. Maybe sooner, maybe sooner. It all, all depends. I got to start making special features now. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll say our proper goodbyes in just a minute, but I just want to thank you again for helping me um, with get, do these um, episodes for Derek so that way he can spend more time with Beth and getting the wedding planned. Or like I said, tell me this episode comes out the wedding's already done and they get the chance to move in together and get all that stuff situated. Cause that takes time. And hopefully we were able to give him one less thing to worry about when he's doing all this moving around and hustle and bustle. Yeah. No, thank you. Thank you again, Stephen, for, for taking me on and, and, uh, vicariously thank you, Derek, if you're listening, when you're listening for, uh, letting Stephen let me come on <laughs> and talk. And, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm always happy to, to talk and ramble and I could have said so much more, but I, I did my best to restrain myself. And, um, yeah, I do love Mark of the Vampire. I hope you guys check out Todd Tarantula. If Hangover Square is on that list, I would definitely have things to say about that one. So there you go, Derek, a seed has been planted. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that brings us to the end of the show. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for being here. Big thanks to Jack and Gavin Billy for their feedback. Thank you to Mark and Kenny. Thank you to Hansel and thank you for Steve for putting the episode together this week and just doing the lion's share of the work here. I, I'm just doing the ins and outs here and doing the master edit. So thank you for all of that. This episode of Monster Kid Radio would not have happened without you. So thank you. If you want to keep up with Monster Kid Radio between episodes or even while you listen to older episodes, Head over to monsterkidradio.net. This is where you're going to find everything you need to know about Monster Kid Radio between episodes. Links to everything that we talk about here on the show are pretty much there. So go check that out if you want to see how to follow up with Steve or follow up with Ansel Farage or anything else really. Even our Amazon affiliate link is over there. So if you're shopping on Amazon, just click on the Frankenstein's Monster with the Amazon A in its torso. That'll take you to Amazon. It kind of puts us under the, or puts you under the Monster Kid Radio umbrella. Shop on Amazon as you would normally. Doesn't cost you anything extra, but by doing it this way, you're making sure that we get a penny or two off of every purchase that you make through Amazon because we're an Amazon affiliate. And by doing so, you're helping to support the show. Another way you can support the show, of course, is our Patreon campaign. You can look us up over there, patreon.com slash monsterkidradio, or just spread the word about the show. Share the post, retweet tweets. Join us over on Discord or on Reddit. Get involved with what we're doing online between episodes. I'd love to interact with more of you between episodes. And we're really looking to grow Monster Kid Radio. Now that the wedding is a very pleasant memory behind us and we're starting to get moved in and everything's starting to 
take shape. Beth and I are really pushing to do more with Monster Kid Radio and Team Death, which again, you can find on YouTube or at teamdeath.com. So there's a lot of stuff going on, a lot of moving parts that we're really excited about, and we want you to be part of it. So follow us if you can on all these different social media outlets, and we'll do our best to keep you updated with what we've got going on. I don't know if you're going to hear this in time, but Sunday, April 23rd, is the very last day you can vote for the Rondo Hatton Classic Horror Awards. It's the 21st annual Rondo Hatton Classic Horror Awards, and Monster Kid Radio is nominated for Best Podcast, and we are honored to be on the ballot with so many other amazing nominees. The categories on the Rondo Hatton Classic Horror Awards is like a shopping list of all the cool stuff that you should be following as a Monster Kid. Some amazing stuff. Stuff that you probably missed at some point last year. It's all right here, collated in one space for you. Thanks to David and all the hard work that he does every year for the Rondos. A lot of my friends are nominated for Best Podcast. And I've seen a lot of you on Facebook talking about being nominated and all that. And I just want to say congratulations. It's an honor to be nominated along with you. Y'all are my friends, y'all are my colleagues, and we all get to hang out on this ballot together. That's super freaking cool. So go check out rondoaward.com. If there's time for you to vote and you haven't done so yet, all the directions on how to vote are right there. I know it's a lot. I know it's overwhelming. The ballot is huge with all the different categories, each category having anywhere from 10 to 25 different nominees. It's a lot to get through, but know that you do not have to vote in every category. If you want to vote in just best podcast, you can. And again, like I said, Monster Kid Radio is up for a rondo. We'd love to have a tag team partner here for the other rondo award that we won for best podcast several years ago. We still don't have our Hall of Fame plaque. Don't know if that's coming anytime soon, but still, rondoaward.com. Go check that out and make your voice heard. Cast your ballot. Check out the cool stuff on there. What's coming up next week on Monster Kid Radio? I have no idea. I am out of the Steve Turek episodes that were recorded before the wedding. I know he has his own podcast and his own stuff going on, so I, I don't know what's happening. He has talked at one point about doing more, but I don't want you know, to expect that. I, everything that he does for me has just been such a treat. And the best way that you can thank him for that is to check out his podcast, the Diecast Movie Podcast. Go check that out. Seriously, Steve does amazing interviews. He's not been in the game as long as a lot of us podcasters. He's been doing it for a few years. But if you listen to his interviews, you'd think he'd be doing it for like a good 20 plus years. He's got a great way with how he talks to celebrities and people involved in the fandom. He is just somebody that I learn from every time I listen to his show. So do me a favor and check out his show for me, okay? Anyway, there may be a Steve episode next week. I hate to say it, but maybe there will be a break next week as I kind of reset. I don't know. But stay tuned to monsterkidradio.net because that's where you're going to see everything going on with Monster Kid Radio. That's where all the news will break, as well as on our Facebook page and Facebook group. I will tell you that in May, there will be the first live trivia quiz patron event. If you're a patron of Monster Kid Radio over at patreon.com slash monsterkidradio, You'll see this. You don't have to be a patron to see this particular post. I did post on there that this is going to be happening in the very near future. Uh, there's even a poll going right now if you're considering becoming a patron so that you can participate in this live trivia quiz. We're looking at 50 monster movie trivia questions, difficulties, uh, 
ranging from like super, super easy to real brain scratchers or scramblers. I don't know what you want to call it. Uh, it's going to be fun. And we're looking at even giving away prizes. I've got some Monster Kid mystery box material that I'd love to use as prizes as well. But again, you've got to be a patron over on Patreon to play in the live game. And then the recording of it will then appear as a future episode of Monster Kid Radio, probably sometime in June. I'd say sometime in May, but May is the month of Monos. We're doing Monos the Hands of Fate for four weeks in a row. At least that's the plan here on Monster Kid Radio. And uh, I, I am going to show my wife. I'm going to show Beth Monos the Hands of Fate. She's married now. She's locked in. She, she can't run away from it. She's in. She married me, and now she's marrying Monos. That sounded weird, but we're going to be doing Monos the Hands of Fate. Beth and I are going to be talking about it. Chris McMillan from The Shadow Over Portland will be doing an episode of Monster Kid Radio with me as well, and I'm super excited about that because he and I have a very special announcement about Monos the Hands of Fate and Monster Kid Radio and Team Death and The Shadow Over Portland regarding Monos the Hands of Fate. So that'll be coming up sometime in May as well. Still need to book a few more guests because, well, there's four episodes and I've only got two kind of worked out, but it'll be coming. Again, monsterkidradio.net. Pay attention there or pay attention to our Facebook page. I want to go ahead and wrap up. I know that I've made y'all wait a little while to get this episode out, so let's go ahead and wrap up by reminding you that Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, not commercial, no derivatives. 3.0 unported license. Of course, that doesn't apply to the song Serpiente. That is copyright 2023, The Surfing Robbers. They're a surf band that you can find over at thesurfingrobbers.bandcamp.com or under The Surfing Robbers on Instagram or Facebook. Check them out. Check out their album, Tropicalia, and let them know that Monster Kid Radio sent you. My name's Sarah Kim Cook. I'll talk to everybody next week. I think. Ciao. Ciao. <laughs>